the feeling was always with firefighting and you had little time to forward think. You're just trying to keep up with what's happening. So if we can save someone a day a week or 20% of their time, and they can actually use that to forward think, which can reduce errors later, improve design, reduce carbon, reduce cost, then that's the real gain. What you really want to understand is what the other wins as a byproduct of having more time. Welcome to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name's Jack Lomas, and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience building the future of our planet. This week, we welcome Carlos Cavallio, CEO of Apex, the first multiplayer scheduling software for construction delivery teams. Apex is the fastest way for construction teams to plan together and is loved by teams in, in most of the major consultants and contractors across major infrastructure schemes in the UK and Australia. One quick point before I pass over to Carlos. If I may ask a favour, if you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it really helped promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. Now, let's welcome Carlos. Hey Carlos, thanks so much for joining me today. No problem at all, how are you doing? Really good, really good. So I know that you've been around in the industry for, for quite a while now. You, you started your career at a Costain and you now lead Apex. You must have a really good perspective of how the industry has changed over time. I'm really keen for your thoughts just as we dive in. What would you say the biggest change and drivers in the marketplace have been? That was a really polite way of calling me old. So thanks for that. Been kicking around for a while. Yeah, it's, it's obviously changed in terms of perception. So going from a large contractor, you're very much in a bit of a silo where you're completely focused on a project for three, four, five years at a time. So you don't really have a gauge for the wider industry. You get a really good grasp on how like these large projects are run, the sort of real harsh pain that they go through to try and deliver these projects in an attempt to do it on time and on budget, obviously. But you, you are really cut off from the world and it's not till Apex where we do a lot of work with, with podcasts and trying to make sure that we have a, a sort of grasp on the wider industry that you, you actually appreciate what's being done to try and improve certain aspects of our industry. But you sort of experience the realization of how difficult it actually is to change like an industry like construction, which is obviously super old school, massive, and pretty set in its ways, as most people would probably say with these things. So maybe I'm an optimist, but I think there has very much been a sort of shift over the last really year or two about the sort of large asset owners and the large players in the industry really taking a little bit more control and having a lot more aspiration about how the industry could be run. Absolutely. So we obviously go to a lot of events and hear a lot of the direction coming from senior leaders in the industry and the desire to change and to digitize and enable different aspects of sort of technology is there. If we come back to, I guess, the sort of technology side of things, there are some real sort of issues that are quite apparent at the moment which I think is driving the adoption of technology in a sort of stronger way that we haven't seen before. So to pick on a few, if we look at large billion pound plus projects and our experience is really from the UK and Australia as our sort of two home markets. First of all, there's a massive resource strain. That's no secret. Everyone's aware. You're going to struggle to get bricklayers. You're going to struggle to get 
planners and project managers. There's just not enough people. And then you throw in the likes of Neil and these Saudi mega projects. I was, I was speaking to a project the other day. It's 25 billion and I've never heard of it. That doesn't happen outside of places like Saudi Arabia. And they are really pulling people in. There's the obvious law of lots of cash, tax-free, give up your life for two years, come home and be mortgage-free. You could see why a lot of people sort of go for that. But the pure volume of work they're doing is just unbelievable. It's something like, I, I worked out sometimes the other day, it's like, it was almost like 1% of all infrastructure spend in the world is in Saudi Arabia in an area that's like 100,000 people live in. So it's, it's really pooling everything. And it's not just people, it's plant. It's like the number of piling rigs there that they need to actually deliver the line, for example, is just, it, it, it's crazy. So there's this resource issue. So we need to be more productive. We need to be more effective with our time and we need to deliver more work with less people. You then got the sort of multinational aspect. So if you do look at one of these projects, they have loads of people that are living in the UK, the US, Australia, delivering these schemes. So they're no longer sat in a cabin like the old days of construction projects. So you have to use technology to work then because you're not face-to-face. -face, so there's just no way around it. So that's sort of accelerating certain aspects to make sure that they can actually not just, and I'm not just talking obviously teams and everything else. It's how do you actually collaborate within tools, which from as a technology company, the likes of Notion, Figma, Slack is just standard stuff, but construction's not really quite there yet. And uh, the, the sheer size of these contracts has actually, I've seen recently, driven some conversation around, should they be broken up? So there's, a, there's only a set number of contracts in the world that can bid for a five billion pound project. And that's why we've got American companies bidding in South, Saudi Arabia. You've got Australian companies going for work in the UK, because there's only this small pool of projects of that sort of size. And there's quite an interesting, interesting discussion at the moment about whether these contracts should be split up. So should it be client organizations with a larger pool of smaller contracts and those works are going to local specialist contractors. So it broadens the pool of organizations that can actually go for these works. But then there's the obvious risks of, if you think of like a, a typical infrastructure project, if one area of your project goes really wrong, you can absorb the loss because other areas of the project go well. If you've got one specialist contractor delivering steel work and steel work spikes and they have got nowhere to sort of hide and that can really put a firm under. So there's lots of sort of pros and cons of how these projects could be delivered in terms of the size of the organization trying to deliver these, these projects. But yeah, tying back to, to Saudi again, they don't have the volume of companies, people or plant to actually deliver these schemes. So this resource issue is really sort of accelerating this change uh, and from what I'm saying. And are you seeing these mega projects in Saudi and elsewhere really take a toll on delivery in here in the UK? I've got a, a number of head of planning or UK contractors say directly that they're struggling to fill spots, particularly for planners, for example, who are quite short in the UK and they are being lured over to different places with obviously the promise of a lot of money. So it's it, trying to fill these spots is proving difficult. We're seeing some of this sort of consultants growing a lot at the moment. So they're, they're obviously plugging gaps and delivering high quality individuals at the expense of the contractor, because they're always going to be more expensive than having someone hired in house. 
So the, the issue is definitely there and it's real. It's a good time for, for Turn and, and Townsend right now. Yeah, exactly. And even like Laminars and Logical and those sort of slightly smaller consultancy, but they, they seem to be growing with lots of individuals that have left contractors. So they're well experienced at what they're delivering. They seem to be well-run companies and they're sort of, they're all doing sort of multiple projects or each individual is assigned to multiple projects. So it sort of validates that there aren't enough people to have bumps on seats permanently on these large schemes. And I am really interested in the, the breaking up of contracts point. So is that adopting more of a, a framework approach or is it quite literally chopping up the delivery plan into smaller batches and then bringing in a contractor for just one part of that? My sort of articles that I was reading was the sort of the latter. So actually breaking down these large contracts into slightly smaller. So if you've got a 500 million pound contract with a contractor and then they're letting out a 100 million pounds contract to an FRC contractor, why not go client to FRC, make that one smaller package, broaden the pool of those who can tender for it and effectively not pay fee on fee, which they're going to do for the contractor. So the Alliance model does kind of support it too, but then alliances are generally, they're lots of small jobs, but they're still sort of the value of the contract is still quite large. So it, it, it may sort of dissuade or reduce the ability for small firms to go for it. Yeah, but I'm at the same time, that sort of model, you're going to need large client teams, right? Because they're managing more contracts. So there's got to be this tipping point, which is the most sort of effective or productive. Because the thought around the alliances just did just come to mind, specifically National Highways, Smart Motorways Alliance, which came out probably about three, three or four years ago now. But it was a, a really quite a new approach to delivering major infrastructure. You had different roles. The overall approach was to take a design for manufacturing and assembly, some modern methods of construction approach to delivering smart motorways program and very much split it up to different types of roles, such as an integration partner, such as a, an offsite manufacturing partner which differed from the traditional approach of splitting it up by asset life cycle, your, your design consultant, your, your contractor, et cetera. So it was a really interesting approach. I are now a few ways, a few years into the program, but I think it really did signal quite a, quite a big shift in the industry. And definitely it was probably the most high profile push towards adopting DFMA in large scale infrastructure. Yeah. The, the alliance there, it's. It's quite interesting how they set up. They sort of have, obviously they've got their regions where each contractor sort of takes the lead from a construction point of view, but it's when we look at some of these specific aspects, so they've got something called the dynamic hard shoulder where they utilize the full plane. That team is actually built up of members of all the design companies, as well as all the delivery partners, and they all do function together. Like it's their own sort of independent contractor. So I think that model works really well. It encourages that you're pooling the resource and the knowledge of all of these contractors to actually deliver it as one team, like it's a joint venture, but you couldn't have a joint venture deliver, obviously the smart motorways scheme, cause it's way too big. So yeah, I think that has its merits and my experience of working with those guys is they're a well-functioning team and it's, it's, it's going really well. And I'm really excited to see the, the days when a, a startup or a scale up will take one of those tier one spots on, on frameworks. I think in the, in the water sector, 
with some of the digital transformation frameworks, you do see quite a, an interesting blend of large engineering incumbents, massive multi-billion pound companies sitting alongside startups on the same framework, going for the same work. Personally, I absolutely love to see it. And I, th I think ultimately that sort of competition benefits everyone. It benefits the, the asset owner, it benefits the end consumer. But it's really exciting to see startups that were maybe not around a matter of years ago, really starting to take a bigger piece of the pie in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, I'd imagine it's super difficult because it's always the classic names, right? So it's, you've got to be in the old boys club <laughs> to say a really old school phrase to try and get in. But I think if you can have, if you've got the right technology that is detrimental to delivering a certain type of scheme. So let's just say, I don't know, a, a startup comes in a way to lay asphalt, which is just blows everyone else out of the water. They really would be in these sorts of alliances straight away if they're delivering that sort of efficiency saving and reduction in carbon and everything else that startups are sort of aiming to do. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to see that. Obviously with technology startups, it's a bit hard to make their actual partners. They're obviously going to be supply chain because they're not bum on seats model, but uh, there's some pretty cool stuff going on at the moment in terms of new technology to actually build jobs. So yeah, I, that would get me really excited to see them as being named Alliance members for large schemes like that, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I guess I wonder when you'll then start seeing the, the large incumbents then actually acquiring some of these companies. There are little examples here and there of, of acquisitions, but actually a multi-billion pound engineering consultancy acquiring a venture-backed startup. I think in the UK, we still don't have that many examples, but if you look at a WSP, extremely acquisitive, has acquired many, many large other, other large engineering consultancies around the world and really sort of scaling up their headcounts. Then I think we're still missing a really good example of an engineering consultancy acquiring a venture-backed startup. I wonder when we'll, we'll see the, we'll, we'll see that happen. Yeah. Nothing comes to mind in the UK. I don't know if that's, I don't know, I don't know if there's appetite for risk. I don't know if it's every startups go elsewhere because they want the hundred X multiple revenue. Yeah, yeah. the UK is prepared to pay that. Yeah. It'll be good to see an example of that. There's a, there's a good set of, there's four or five startups that like those names have been present ever since we've been around. So I'll be interested to see which one of those gets, gets soaked up first and, and who to. And I guess just on that point around sort of large scale adoption, I think there, there are quite a few examples of the big players adopting either a build versus buy strategy. And I think you could almost, you could almost categorize large players on either side. And the large players would almost fit into one of the two categories with quite a clear divide down the middle. What are you seeing at the minute? So five years ago, there were a few contractors that were really sort of, they made the decision to build software in-house. Building software in-house is difficult and obviously expensive. So not just building a product, but maintaining a product, supporting a product, and then continuously developing that product for the rest of your life to make sure it keeps up with the market. It's never done in sort of modern technology or software. You're also running the risk that you're building it based on in-house knowledge. So 
you want the knowledge of an entire industry feeding information into a product to make it the best it can be, not just say, right, we know how to deliver jobs. So we're going to basically digitize what we were already doing because they probably thought that was the best way to do things anyway. So the, the limitation of the software and the cost of building and, and running it forever seemed to have been acceptable five years ago. And a few contractors really did go for it. I'm seeing now they're still doing that, but they're doing it in more specific places. So there are simple sort of form-based systems, such as a site diary, which isn't complicated. You're just passing data into cells and the team might be filling out or adding detail to that. And that makes tons of sense because you could do that in-house. A site diary is very much bespoke. Every contractor wants their own version because of the types of details they want to store. So it's hard to sort of standardize that across an industry. So that, that seems absolutely fine, but we're now seeing a shift away from things, particularly in our space, like planning, which very complicated software generally, especially when you're trying to keep the, the user end extremely simple. So we're seeing a lot less in that space. We've even had a couple of contractors actually build the tool. And then once they've released it to their teams, it didn't go down very well. And then they sort of, they have sort of given up and, and decided to purchase, which is yeah, obviously a bit of a learning curve for them. Great for vendors like us, where we really want to be sort of pushing in that space. So I guess from that, the focus now for contractors is really building this sort of ecosystem. They want to be able to pick the best set of apps, best in class in the market, either by project by project or as an organization. And then they want that to be very easily integratable quickly. And they don't want to have to secure developer time to sort of hook up these old school APIs, they want to be able to have two click integrations like we're used to as technology companies. So it's a, it's an interesting space to be whilst everyone sort of claims or whilst every software vendor claims that like you're going full digital and got APIs and data, we actually need, do need to connect these apps together and make sure that we're going to a single source so we can actually use that data in a meaningful way. Whereas it's all been very sort of, this is technology and this is a set of data, but they're all just kind of independent from each other. So building out that ecosystem and allowing projects to use a set of tools that's most appropriate for them seems to be the way that companies going at the moment, from my experience. What do you think is driving this shift? Is it a realization that in-house software development actually costs quite a lot? Or do you think it's more on the other side related to where the value lies. For example, if a large contractor works with a scale-up that has spent 10, 50 million pounds over the last four years developing one specific solution against one specific pain points, you're probably going to get a lot of value out of that. What do you think the driver is? Part of it is probably, it was about today, 10 to 20 years ago, they probably built their first tools. And they're now realizing that those tools are redundant and they're building them again, or they would have to build them again to keep them going. So that initial sort of build cost is a repetitive or a cycle that they're going to have to do forever. Part of it is subscriptions are getting cheaper. Like ours is 30 quid a month. If you looked 15 years ago, you're probably looking at hundreds or thousands of pounds per person for software, particularly when you look at the likes of Oracle and Bentley and those sort of organizations. So. The cost of subscriptions is going lower. They're probably realizing that just maintaining these systems is probably more expensive than purchasing a subscription, which 
gives them the flexibility every year to go, this is no longer the best in market. So I'm going to get this one. Minimal setup, minimal cost to, to switch over. So it allows organizations to be agile and it allows them to lean on organizations that are obviously focusing completely on that particular pain point and using the revenue from an entire industry to improve that product at a rate that you just couldn't keep up with. I think from where I'm seeing it, a lot of it comes down to return on investment and really where that value sits. A lot of these solutions are built by specialists to target one specific pain point, and they do it really, really well. And it's contractors, large consultants aren't in the business of software developments. They're in the business of engineering domain expertise. And I think it's going back to your point around ecosystem, it's working out what as a large organization, what your ecosystem needs to look like to ultimately deliver, for example, new capital infrastructure as efficiently and effectively as possible. So I think that sort of blend is very much where the industry is desperately trying to move towards, but with a little bit of resistance here and there. And I, I know that there are some interesting examples of large contractors, consultants investing heavily into their digital journey. Do you think that these corporate venture capital sort of venture building capabilities is, is where the market's going? Yeah, I think organizations are definitely taking a more practical approach to not just the software that they within the organization. But a lot of them seem to have these sort of venture wings that are actually looking to invest. So they want to sort of find these best startups, invest in those, and then obviously reap the rewards of growth. And obviously at the same time, they're introducing a huge customer to these companies that inflates their value. So the, the model makes a lot of sense. On the note of Band Ventures, there was a guy speaking the other day at Digital Construction Week, and he did a talk. Obviously, he, he looks at products not just for the organization, but actually potentially for investment. And a big shift for him was the way that he approaches return on investment. Return on investment is something that you might see me rant on LinkedIn about. I hate the way that it's, it was always just done. I, I tried to introduce e-signatures at a previous company and you, you go onto this, this online sort of page, you, you plug in how many people you have and how many signatures that they, you think they do per week or month. And I went, awesome, you're going to save 25 million pounds per year in a company where I think there was a billion pound revenue and half of that is just cash flowing in and out with the subcontractors. So like alarmingly high savings. And I showed it to someone thinking they would just laugh and they went, oh, that's really good. And I was like, oh God, this is, this is part of what's wrong with this. These numbers people believe because someone has a calculation that sort of backs it up. But anyway, this, the, the guy from Band Ventures was talking about how he looks at return on investment completely differently. So it's quite hard to quantify it, but it's the thought process on actually making a decision is more sort of alignment to their goals and their sort of digitization strategy. How would it actually impact their clients? So does it put them in a positive light and improve what the customer, the client is getting from, from the contractor? Yes, there are going to be some element of cost reductions, but it's more of the direct cost reduction, not the, if you save two hours per week, over a thousand people, that's the saving, but there could be a front, like a very specific sort of saving from embedding some sort of technology within the business. And it's actually the reduction of risk and the increase of employee engagement. 
So they are more qualitative. They are a little bit more to, to slap a number on, but you would go through an assessment and a sort of scoring criteria like you would a procurement exercise for a subcontract on a, on a project. And that makes tons more sense. There are too many organizations say we will improve productivity by 30%. And this is, this is the saving because in reality that, that just doesn't happen. So yeah, interesting angle from him. And it's good to see contractors actually sort of taking that approach to assessing technology. What type of ROI metrics do you use at Afex? Back in the day when we were a fresh faced startup, we used to sort of survey our users to find out how much time they think they save each week based on the method that they previously used, which was Excel and PowerPoint and things like that. Now, the, the best one that we have is actually a large Thames Tideway. There was a PhD student actually on the scheme. We had absolutely no idea that she was doing a PhD on technology and did this full academic study on the saving of related to Apex and their projects. That was great because we had no involvement and it looks, it doesn't look like we're just going, you're going to save loads of money. And that's because we decided you will. It was a full study. So that's one that we like to share. But the way we sort of operate is we work with projects and projects obviously have an experience of us and the tool and what they believe is to be an improvement on their outcome. And then they share and they refer us to other schemes. So we're quite sort of community driven in our growth. And that really comes down to certain sort of stories. And like one, for example, there was a particular scheme. I won't even name the scheme, let alone the project, because it's obviously like it's tied to performance information. But they had their PPC, which is effectively the rate of how many activities they're completing. So in, if you plan to do 10 activities last week and you actually completed two, you're 20% in terms of that sort of churn. And they were in the 20, 25% bracket and they were trying to do too much work and it just didn't work because there's only so many games that you can throw into a particular part of site and actually allow them to be productive. So we sort of embedded the tool. We got brought in by the project director and project manager and three months later, they were 75%. And it's not because they were doing three times more work but they were effectively planning. So they knew how much work they could actually attempt to do. So they can actually complete what they plan to do rather than try and do everything every day. So that sort of increase in a metric such as PPC, which is a metric that a lot of projects will use to see how they are performing. That's the real sort of ROI type metric that I like to communicate to other customers because it's real. It's not this sort of fictitious saving which assumes that you're actually going to sack 10 people because you don't need them anymore, which just isn't reality. So yeah, I like the, the real hard stuff. Yeah. And it's just a lot more real, isn't it? I think really that's such a stronger value proposition. Yeah. I think it gives us extra time. The feeling was always with firefighting and you had little time to forward think. You're just trying to keep up with what's happening. So if we can save someone a day a week or 20% of their time, and they can actually use that to forward think, which can reduce errors later, improve design, reduce carbon, reduce cost. So that's the real gain. And that's why it's so hard to slap an ROI number on a saving because that person's not leaving. What you really want to understand is what the other wins as a byproduct of having more time. What were they? And how can that? It's really hard to quantify, but that really is the important stuff. It's a really interesting paradox because it's, almost stepping away 
from the usual temptation of, oh, we can save hours per person per day, but it's actually just saying, hey, we can, we can just deliver this just a lot more accurately. And actually the, the value of accuracy is, is often undervalued. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure any project manager would snap your hand off for a higher probability of hitting an end date than to save 10% on staff time getting there without that sort of guarantee. Yeah, it's, a, it's a dangerous game to say you're going to make these huge savings, which in reality aren't actually going to happen. And just one last one to finish. What does the next 12 months have in store for you? So the next 12 months, we've got quite a number of integrations that we're working on with all sorts of other sort of space leading products. About one of them is with the year olds company Sensor. Obviously we love what they're doing and we've got a lot of customers in common. We've got something coming up called our board view. So when we actually observe collaborative planning sessions, site teams still like to revert to using whiteboards because it's familiar, it's simple, and it's something that the whole team can rally around and get behind. So we've sort of recreated a whiteboard view of our products that you can use on a mission room or something like that, which is an again chart, which puts off some people because it's inherently sort of complicated. We're releasing mobile apps. We're working on a possession version of our tool. So rail possessions want to plan to the 15 minutes. It's a big feature request from our customers. So our roadmap's absolutely chocker. And yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Stay tuned for next week's episode. And in the meantime, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So please do feel free to give me a shout on LinkedIn. Thanks and goodbye.